Butcher Talk. Hey, what's up? This is another episode of the Butcher Bordello of Blood podcast. As always, I am Zach Butcher, and uh, I have uh, I've got Blade Brown with me. And this week we have four guests. We have uh, Ben Rock, Bob DeRosa, Nick Brachia. I probably fucked that one up, and Mike Manello. Um, how's everyone doing? All talk at the same time. Yeah, good, go good. You, and good. you did butcher. You Super. Did butcher it. It's Brachia. Uh, Oh, damn it. Braccia. Okay. Um. <laughs> Have you thought about for Halloween going by Bracula? Never. <laughs> it was worth the I shot. love that. <laughs> so, uh, the way this normally works is I like to go through and ask everyone about their history with horror and then their history with the art that they make. So if you guys are cool with that, I will just go down the list and ask everyone one by one. I hear no objections. Yeah. Uh, ben, would you no like objections to go first? Here. When, well, when you say history with horror, do you mean like history as far as fandom or history as far as what I, like work that I've done in horror? Uh, let's start with fandom. Uh, just, you know, like, how old were you when you first experienced it? Was it a comic book? Was it a movie, TV show? You know, like, what, what drew you in? Or what scared you away and then you came back ten years later? We've had those, too. <laughs> um, well, uh, when I was... Uh, I'm from uh, Orlando, Florida, and when I was a kid, we used to get uh, this Tampa TV station, and there was a late-night horror host that would pump in, uh, named Dr. Paul Bearer. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find him online. And uh, he would show, like, old William Castle and, you know, Earth versus Flying Saucer and kind of, you know, like, kind of kind of what were already very dated horror movies by that time. You know, I'm talking, like, you know, it, it, the 1970s. But the, the first horror movie that really scared the shit out of me, for sure, was uh, Peter Medak's uh, The Changeling. And I saw it on HBO when I was probably nine years old, and my mother was up with me all night. Uh, like, literally, I just couldn't go to sleep. It, it, it chilled me. I, I recently watched that movie again, and it, it, it's a surprisingly effective uh, ghost movie. Um, but uh, and then, uh, So I was, like, scared shitless. And then I was talking to my grandfather, who was a former vaudevillian, like, less than a week later, and he ruined horror movies for me for life. He said... Uh, Hey, you know how they make those things, right? I'm like, how? And he's like, eh, it's just like a bunch of guys standing around in a warehouse with a camera. You think they were scared? And I was like, <laughs> I guess not. So, uh, I, I, and, and it kind of ruined horror movies for me forever. And, and I feel like forever I've been trying to kind of, you know, re-up that. Like, I, I, it's not that I've never been startled or, you know, existentially dreaded out by a horror movie. But it's hard to get, like, that scared. Um, but you know, like going into the eighties, you know, I saw, well, alien obviously it was from the seventies, but I saw alien and then aliens. I saw, uh, John Carpenter's the thing, uh, Joe Dante's the howling. I, th these are things I videotaped off of HBO and just watched over and over again. Um, yeah. uh, Tom, Tom Holland's fright night was, was a big one for me. Like, I feel like probably fright night was the moment when I was like, okay, I think I'm a horror fan. You know, I was probably like 14 or 15 when I saw that on cable and, um, you know, wanted to basically wanted to make horror movies ever since. I, I I remember in elementary school buying a book at the book fair on werewolves and one on vampires, and I remember specifically it was for research. You know, because when I was like <laughs> seven or eight years old, I I, I wanted to research the, the horror stuff. So to me, like it's it's kind of been a lifelong thing. 
I think that's fantastic. Uh, I also, I'm having a, like, the age difference for, for me, like, HBO exists now, and it's, you know, it's cool to see those, like, those uh, premieres that we're getting in the time of COVID, blah, 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 but, like, HBO was not home to all these cool horror movies to watch when I was a kid. It was just kind of, like, there, you know, you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, or at 3 a.m., you would unintentionally watch softcore porn. Like, there was nothing super Unintentionally. Cool. Well, I mean, I was like eight, so it wasn't like I was going out of my way, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's awesome. Um, Bob, where are you at on this? What, uh, uh, what's what's actually, your history? Really similar to Ben, actually. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I grew up, I moved around a lot as a kid, so there, there was a Dr. Paul Barra in pretty, pretty much every market, so I forget who my guy was back in... Well, I grew up in like kind of the California area for the first few, first few years when I was getting into creature features and I was really into Godzilla movies and like the, you know, the old school, like, you know, Dracula and Wolfman stuff. But then I, I moved to uh, Orlando when I was 12. So I remember Dr. Paul Bearer. And then um, I have this memory. We had just moved to Orlando, me and my parents. We didn't have furniture yet, but I guess we had our beds because like my parents were asleep in their room. I was by myself in our living room, sitting on the floor with no furniture. We had a TV and a clunky VCR sitting on the floor. And I sat there in the dark by myself and watched Alien for the first time. And it exploded yeah. my brain and freaked me out. And it was like the best possible like haunted house movie, really, because that ship just freaked me out. And it was just, it was an incredibly visceral experience. And so then, it's weird, I, I went through a zone in my early you know, my preteens, I guess, where I was scared of bloody movies, so, like, I avoided horror for a second. And then my buddy and I, I can't remember why we did this, but, like, there was a double feature of Halloween 2 and American World from London, and we convinced our mom, my mom, to go... Oh, no. Am I still there? There we go. You convinced your mom. Bob. The aliens got him. I'm yeah. back. I'm there back. Yeah, go. actually, I, I died in that screening, and it was a ghost <laughs> that was talking to you. No, so then, yeah, I convinced my mom to talk to the theater owner and let us watch these two R-rated movies by ourselves, and they were super bloody, of course, and American Wealth London is today one of my absolute favorite horror movies, but that just, that broke my cherry. I was like, I'm in now for the rest of my life, and then it was like, you know, I got to see The Thing in the theater, and and I was a huge John Carpenter fan, and so I just kind of grew up, you know, what, being a horror lover in the 80s was a pretty a pretty incredible time. So, uh, yeah, so I've been a horror fan ever since. Hell yeah. I, The Thing is probably one of my all-time favorite movies, but the, the idea of being able to see Halloween 2 and American World from London together, that's insane. Uh, yeah. My, my dad has told me a similar story about, Growing up in the early '80s, there was a there was a theater in the small town that I grew up in, and he was like, "We wanted to see Nightmare on Elm Street," and our mom wrote us a note saying we were ah. allowed to see an R-rated movie, and the guy was just like, "Yeah, sure, that works," and I was like, <laughs> "What? <laughs> like it does not work like that?" <laughs> Mike, uh, what about you? Yeah, yeah, you know, um, I, I, I. I Horror is interesting for me because I I was not then and never was a fan of 
kind of the slasher and the bloodier uh, horror films that were out at that time. I also was born and raised in Florida and South Florida um, like them. And um, for me, I was the movies that affected me were much more psychological and and um, and oftentimes not even considered horror. But the things that attracted me were things that really scared the hell out of me. Um, were things like the early Sid and Marty Croft TV shows for kids, where, <laughs> where the stories pretty much always revolved around children being separated from their parents and then being caught in a world where there's real danger. Um, you know, and I'm talking about things like Dr. Shrinker. And you, you watch these things now and you laugh, but these things horrified me and I sought them out. And it, and it was much more psychological horror when I was really young. Uh, before HBO was HBO, uh, my parents had a thing called Key Cinema because it was a box on top of the TV and you'd actually have to turn a key to access it because they played uncut movies. And um, um, later, I don't know if Key Cinema became HBO or if our cable company dumped Key Cinema for HBO, but um, I remember uh, my parents used to um, used to keep it unlocked in, their, in the TV in their bedroom. And... Um, whereas it was always locked in the TV that I had access to. And one night, uh, my parents went out and I pretended to be uh, sleepy early for the babysitter who was more than happy to put me to bed early. And, <laughs> and then I, I snuck out of my room and into my parents' room just to watch key cinema at night. And all I know is that I had heard my dad say to the, um, to the babysitter that there was something on I shouldn't watch. And so, of course, that meant I wanted to watch it. And I ended up watching Taxi Driver, which... Oh, my God. <laughs> completely messed me up at an early age. I didn't even understand it, except that there were human beings being horrible to each other. And I think that, that, kind, of, that kind of psychological scares is what has always attracted me. So, you know, a combination of that, and then I love drive-in exploitation movies... So I, I, I started to, to, to love the, the kinds of horror films that were over the top, right? So not over the top like Friday the 13th, but over the top like, um, uh, you know, some of the, some of the um, American independent cinema pictures like Psych Out or um, what's oh, the one yeah. that, you know, these, these kinds of kind of wild where uh, there's, they're obviously low budget, but there's lots of really interesting, I, scary ideas in there. And I was always able to kind of put myself in these environments of like, oh my God, what would I do in that case? Whereas I had a hard time doing that with slasher films. Um, so for me, it was movies like Poltergeist, movies that I think left a little bit more to the imagination that, that really kind of captured my attention and my passion for, for being scared. Yeah, right on. I think that's very interesting. Um, I don't remember the first time I saw Taxi Driver. I feel like it was much later, though. Like, I think I was in high school. Uh, I remember showing it to my girlfriend, uh, like, four years ago, and she was just like, I don't I don't get it. Why is this movie cool? It's just, like, an angry white guy. And I was like, yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. All right. Like, <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's, it, it's about... It, it's about it's about that. It's about the envi the environment, and not like like the environment, like trees and fresh air, but the environment that we live in and how it affects us psychologically. There's a lot going on there that I love, but yeah, 
that that you know i think it, it it's the reason why like when i think about my favorite movies they often tend to be um they're either uh supernatural but leaving a lot to the imagination like poltergeist which you know also shows a lot of things or they're they're more like movies where um they're more realistic and characters are going through psychological terrors i uh I didn't really pick up on any of those until much later in life. I was just immediately just like, blood, that's great. Yeah, we can stick with blood. <laughs> uh, Nick, where where did it start for you? Yeah, I think I was always into the creepy and the kooky. I think the altogether ooky. And uh, <laughs> around, you know, I remember I remember things like in first grade, which was maybe... I don't know what year that was, maybe 1982, going to Disney World and thinking the Haunted Mansion was the coolest thing ever and that the, the, elong, the, elongated, paint, the elongated paintings there, um, is, it's one of those moments where, where sort of a child, for me, kind of discovers their sensibility. With the, if you're not familiar with those paintings, they start out as a portrait and the portraits get longer and you find out that all of the characters are in some sort of... Uh, horrible situation that's likely to result in death. The tone is, is somewhat comical, though. And then I, th I think about, like, in second grade, my, uh, my teacher, there, was, there were always toys and games and puzzles and things to play with. And the teacher had a puzzle made by a company called Springbok that was done in 73 called House on Haunted Hill. And I probably put it together like 50 times that year. It's just kind of a haunted house that has all of the, the usual, usual scary suspects. But um, cinematically, from a very early age, I was into the Spielberg and Dante uh, style, kind of similar to the sorts of things that, that Manello was, was describing appealed to him. Uh, things like Poltergeist and Jaws. Uh, my family, were we were uh, growing up in Southern Connecticut. We were early VHS adopters. I think we, we were in the newspaper, actually, because we had a VCR. Um, oh, cool. And around maybe nine, I don't know how early in the '80s that was, but it wasn't. It was so. It it was these newfangled devices were so, uh, you know, foreign to people that it was that it was covered. <laughs> it was covered as a news story. Um, so being able to to rent stuff early opened up a lot of doors, and su subsequent to that, uh, again, like like Manello, I was never really drawn to the slashers. Uh, my most, my main experience with them was we had a really derelict teachers in my middle school, and I remember seeing both Child's Play and Hello Mary Lou Prom Night Two, nice. um, or maybe it's Prom Night Two Hello Mary Lou. I might have inverted uh, it you there. Had, you had a uh, in, in okay in school, like in school in, in public <laughs> in pu public middle school science class. Um, yeah, it was a, it, it, it was it was private education from from then onward for me. Um, but the real uh, pivotal moment was Twin Peaks. That's what oh. that's the that's the show that changed my life uh, and really helped me understand what having a sensibility was. Uh, and the scenes with you know Bob or Killer Bob, whatever you call him, um, were they were just like they were like next level terrifying and insidious. And that's that's the sort of stuff that that stuck with me. Probably around the same time I was reading a lot of Stephen King and subsequently Clive Barker. Um, and then it expanded out from there. But I'd say that always um, the horror that's appealed to me is, is where there's a real interesting subtext in like Rosemary's Baby 
versus versus just pure uh, terror. Uh, so things like Polanski, I like a lot, and then and then also I'm drawn to things like Giallo, where you get into you know, kind of like almost erotic expressions. Uh, that may result that may result in intense violence, but there's a lot of interesting psychology going on there. I I, I have to contain myself from spending the next three hours only talking about Twin Peaks. Uh, I fucking love David Lynch. <laughs> As somebody that who's never a, seen that could be a different three? episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, I haven't seen season three, so I need you guys to not do that to me. <laughs> I li- I like season three. Everybody loves it. I just haven't had time. I know it's been years. I just got to get in the mood, you know? Uh, So, uh, trucking along to the next question, what was your guys' first experience with your work in horror? And uh, we're going to go reverse order because I forget the order that Butcher used last time, and I can see you in reverse order on my screen. So, Nick, you're up at the hot plate again, buddy. Oh, wow. I'll go really quick since people are probably tiring of my voice. Um, there's, there's two things. One was professionally, I had an assignment in 2005 or six from M&Ms. I was working on, uh, for the M&Ms brand on all sorts of advertising and they were coming out with dark chocolate and I put together and kind of scripted an interactive painting called 50 dark movies hidden in a painting, which featured visual puzzles, all that represented, uh, horror movies, and I actually snuck in like five David, the green M&M wearing a blue velvet dress for blue velvet. Like I snuck in pretty, some pretty obscure references um, into this this internet flash game, uh, which became like a minor a minor viral hit uh, in the days before social media. And subsequent to that, um, I did a lot of work for a video game franchise launch uh, called Dead Space where they, they wanted a creative director with a real horror pedigree uh, to help them with their, their kind of their campaign's narrative strategy and ended up building an, on, an online game called No No Survivors uh, that, I, that I wrote and directed, uh, designed specifically to scare the shit out of people on the internet. So th- those are probably the, the, two, the two first uh, professional uh, things I'd done. Uh, both, well, the first one certainly before I knew about uh, Mike in, in, in Mike's work, aside from aside from Blair Witch, um, and Dead Space, well, you know, well after I was familiar uh, with with uh, his, his work and reputation. Well, listen, you can't just mention that you worked on Dead Space and just skip along like that. Uh, oh. <laughs> that was a big one for me growing up as a teenager. That game was huge for me. Uh, yeah, they did a great job. Do you have an opinion on the remake? Like, is are you just like, oh, that's uh, cool. I'm I'm appearing on a podcast with other Dead Space people in the near future about it, but I it sounds it sounds great and it sounds like people care about it, like the people making it uh, care. And I thought a, I thought the first one and and the sec- the second one largely were terrific. So I'm ex- I'm excited to see uh, you know see what they put together. Ah, uh, you also do not like three. I feel it. <laughs> but uh, so going yeah, I, back, I couldn't even play three. Nope. Going back through our third reverse order, Mike, what is your... Uh, oh, you muted yourself, buddy. Wrong time. No, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> what is your uh, experience, the first work horror that you've experienced, you know? Yeah. Um, well, honestly, the first work horror that I experienced was Blair Witch Project. Um, Perhaps you've heard point. of it. Yeah, maybe. Well, it, only, um, it only launched an entire genre. I might not have the, heard of it. 
the, um, yeah, it, you know, which was an idea that, you know, uh, Ed Sanchez and Dan Myrick came up with while we were all in film school together. And I remember that idea being kind of, um, you know, the concept being viscerally exciting and really being interested in it and excited by it. But it wasn't until, you know, years later when we were after we had all left film school for some time that we came together to actually make it. And um, for me, what kind of, you know, it, that the thing about Blair Witch Project is it has such an incredible, easy to understand hook and the ability to to play the psychological horror with it was fantastic. And and that my first experience in horror also coincides with really not my first, but my first big experience being able to tell stories on the Internet, you know, with the, the website and kind of engaging with fans but while we were making the movie. And that that really shaped uh, my kind of idea of horror, because I felt like the, the thing that was interesting to me and the things that were exciting to me about like the cross shows was my ability to put myself in those areas to really immerse myself and imagine myself having those kinds of weird warped experiences um, and how frightening and, and, and real that felt to me. And, and Blair Witch kind of followed along, but also the idea that on the internet, um, the, the storytelling was less telling a story about a bunch of characters and more like, this is all around you and kind of putting the, 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 per, the person who's experiencing it at the center of the experience as opposed to as a, as a, as a watcher was really, really fascinating to me. And everything uh, that I've done after uh, with Campfire, which really kind of, t you know, our budgets come from marketing dollars, but our work is really about trying to um, give people immersive experiences in the properties. And when we've been able to work in the horror space, uh, has my excitement has really come from that? You know, I love the I, what I love about about horror and working in horror is the ability to try to give people goosebumps, to try to give them a physical experience through the the, the horror that we're conveying, whether that's you know a podcast or whether that's a, a digital experience. Um, and Nick and I have worked on a few of those, or whether it's a, a physical experience. You know, um, that happens at an event like San Diego Comic-Con. Um, all of those, the ability to, to, to get, you know, horror and comedy are the two genres that where people really tend to have physical reactions. I mean, sometimes drama if they cry. But I just love that. And that's kind of, you know, when people talk about having a physical reaction to something I did, that's when I'm most excited. Absolutely. And because it was brought up, listen, I've had this burning question since everybody agreed for this interview. This has been my like my big question. How do you guys all feel having worked on the Blair Witch Project that uh, the Scooby Doo Project exists? Are you aware of that? Like, do you? Oh, like of that? course. Yeah, yeah, of course. How did it, that come out? Like, what's your opinions? But to me, and and Ben Ben might have a different opinion, but to me, the Scooby Doo Project and also the um, Mad Magazine parody. Because Mad Magazine was also a core kind of piece of my development growing up. You know, the idea that it's anarchist and the humor was very adult, but also very childish. And, um, and the idea that nothing was sacred 
when I would when I was reading Mad Magazine was really um, important to me. And so seeing parodies in Mad Magazine and seeing the Scooby Doo project to me was kind of remarkable. Um, it, 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 it feels like an honor, you know, because these are both of those are properties that meant so much to me growing up and to see them come and reflect on something that I had anything to do with uh, was is still to this day kind of mind blowing. See, perfect. And now guess who's next on the hot seat anyways, Ben? What are your thoughts <laughs> on the Scooby-Doo project and also your first experience working in horror? Oh man. Well, uh, I mean, the Sco- I, I I loved honestly all the parodies and it was it was freaky to me. Um, it it's just weird to work on a project with like a bunch of your college buddies on a really low budget and then suddenly to see like it was more kind of just like surreal and shocking to me how much um how much play that that stuff got and i watched as but i mean back then at the time people would send me literal vhs tapes of of these things so i saw uh i think that's how i saw the scooby-doo project that's how i saw the blair thumb project <laughs> um there, there's always the softcore porn knockoff the bear winch project which was on cinemax at the time i think um well <laughs> you know it, it was just uh super super crazy shocking to me that that we that this uh that I, it's not. It wasn't a goofy idea. I, you know, when, from the first moment that it was pitched to me, I thought it was one of the coolest ideas I'd ever heard. But uh, but the fact that it, that it ended up having like a cultural impact, I, I'd never done it. I'd worked on a bunch of movies at that point, uh, and none of them had had any cultural impact. You know, they, and and they all had way bigger budgets. So it 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 was uh, surreal and exciting, and I knew at the time and uh, can recognize now it's sort of like a once in a lifetime thing like that kind of thing doesn't really happen there's no one who can who can it's very hard to replicate that kind of thing i'll say um and uh yeah that was that was great you know as for for like my professional history uh i i always had kind of like two parallel competing loves one was theater and one was horror movies and uh, and when I started, I wanted to be a makeup artist. Like a, I wanted to make monsters. So even in high school, I was doing special effects monster makeup. And I started doing uh, like working in local community theaters in Orlando. There was a place called the Civic Theater of Central Florida. And uh, one day I walked in there. They were doing a, a theater version of Frankenstein. And I met the woman who was in charge of makeup there. Her name, uh, well, her name is Amanda Llewellyn now because she's married. But uh uh, and she was, you know, probably in her late twenties, early thirties. And I was 17 and she just thought it was cause I walked in with a Frankenstein prosthetic that I'd made to show her. And, and, and uh, you know, like today I realized that's just kind of a, a nutty thing to do. Um, but, uh, she kind of took me under her wing and kind of trained me to be her assistant. So I worked in a lot of theater stuff through, uh, the end of high school and most of college doing makeup and then she literally trained me to be her assistant and brought me on a bunch of David Pryor movies and if you're not familiar with David Pryor uh, he made uh, he he died about like six years ago but he made like 30 something all distributed features uh, most of which were filmed in the southeast most most notably Mobile Alabama and I got he made every genre of exploitation so I got to work on a big-ass monster movie uh, called Mutant Species. I got to work on kind of like a, a stupid action movie called Raw Justice. That was the first one I ever worked on. And I got to make a monster for them for a movie called The Pack, which is an acronym for Prefabricated Animalistic Cybernetic Killer. 
and uh, and the pack. Uh, I, I think you can find it in its entirety on YouTube. Not a good film, but uh, you know, it was it, it was so much fun to work on those movies. But it was around that time that I was starting to realize that makeup effects wasn't what I wanted to do with my entire life, and uh, and I decided I wanted to pursue directing and. Like that year, 1990, it was like 1997, I worked on my last prior movie. And I'd worked on movies for other people too, but I probably, uh, he was probably my biggest repeat customer. And uh, um, I, I kind of decided to uh, quit makeup and pursue directing, but right around that time, Greg Hale had pitched me the Blair Witch Project. Um, and so, uh, so and, and I thought it was the most brilliant idea ever. And uh, they kind of, like obviously, I wanted to pursue directing, and it wasn't an opportunity to direct because Ed and Dan were directing it. But uh, it was such a such an exciting idea and such a such a different way to approach making a movie. Um, I lo- it actually kind of scratched my theater itch because it used kind of theater theatery techniques, like you know improv and stuff like that, and, and the way that it was all being done. And uh, and I loved kind of the creepy ass mythology because I I was a giant fan of you know at at the time I subscribed I still subscribe to the Forty and Times magazine, and uh, you know I was uh, like like everyone else who was involved in it I was a giant fan of In Search of when I was growing up and uh, you know the old with Leonard Nimoy, and uh, and and so to me it kind of like melded everything that I thought was cool into into one idea, and and uh, it didn't matter to me you know, that there really wasn't any money in it. It just sounded like the most fun ever to, to make it. And Greg asked me to be the production designer. And I had production design offers after the movie came out. I'm like, every, to, to everyone, I'm like, I am not a production designer. <laughs> I, I have exactly one, one project that, I have, that I'm credited with production design. I, I'd done art department on like some commercials and some movies of the week that were shot in Orlando, but I, I really wasn't an art department person. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I would say, actually, they were virtually back-to-back for me, and the two most fun experiences I ever had making a movie in my life were The Pack and The Blair Witch Project. And, you know, there's a reason you've heard of Blair Witch and not The Pack. Um, <laughs> but, but both of them kind of felt like summer camp, where when you were done, there was a movie. Uh, absolutely, uh, that's be- perfect. And uh, beyond that, by the way, like, you know, I directed a movie for Warner Brothers called Alien Raiders a while ago. Uh, Bob and I did uh, a web series called 20 Seconds to Live. Actually, uh, yeah, I think it's been two years since we finished the second season of that. Like, I'm, I'm always very plugged into the horror world. It's, it's, it's my happy place. Good. And now, following up, because I messed up the reverse order, uh, Bob. You had one job, man. I know, I know dude. dude. I know. Come on. But follow yeah, that but, shit, Bob. Yeah, well, Ben <laughs> totally set me up, though. So, I mean, yeah, I... It's like, I like a lot of different genres. So like, I was making movies in college as a writer and a director, uh, making movies with my buddies, and we we I made some we made some horror, but not good horror. But I was just trying to figure out what kind of stuff I like to make. And so, like, I moved out to Los Angeles about twenty years ago, and just decided to focus on screenwriting. And I've kind of fell into like more of a fun action movie track. And so I wrote the movie Killers with Ashton Kutcher and Katherine Heigl, and like you know just made a living as a screenwriter and like Ben and I were friends and you know I knew Ben and Mike back in Orlando before I moved out and so Ben and I ended up in LA around the same time and we both were on kind of these parallel tracks trying to get stuff made which is really hard but I also love theater and it's like theater is the perfect thing to just kind of keep working on your chops when you're 
trying to get actual paying work. And so I would write these, you know, Ben and I were both members of a theater company, Sacred Fools in Hollywood, and they had a late night show called Serial Killers, and which is these ongoing serials that the audience votes which ones get to come back. And so I would write these ridiculous, you know, often horror comedies or just generally blood-soaked um, fun stuff that Ben would direct. And you always knew when, it, when our episode was coming up because the host would be introducing our episode while Ben is on stage unrolling giant rolls of plastic wrap to keep the blood from staining the stage. So, um, so like we did that for years and did a lot of different shows. And that's kind of how Ben and I figured out an aesthetic of like the stuff that we would work on together. And so, yeah, he pitched me eventually. He's like, hey, we could actually shoot something if we're doing all this, you know, really fast theater. And so we did 20 Seconds to Live, which was an anthology horror comedy uh, web series. And we, we did, you know, two seasons of that. We've played over 20 festivals, won a bunch of awards and something we're super proud of. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so then that actually, I, we'll eventually talk about Video Palace, but when it came time to work on Video Palace, that's the first time I'd ever made a buck doing anything in the horror world after loving it and working in it for for years and years. That was actually, Video Palace was my first professional uh, horror job. I don't know if it's good or bad, but out of the, I, I think I've been doing this for like a year, talking to people about their art and horror, and uh, people of various levels of involvement, you know, like different jobs altogether, blah, blah, blah. Everyone is like, yeah, I did this for like 20 years, and I had to live with my mom, and then I finally made some money, and I'm just like, I kind of love that, but also I feel awful that horror, like, it, it keeps you in, but you also make no money for what feels like forever. Oh, I yeah, mean, I it's mean, a gravy train compared to theater. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's probably it, true. It's also one of those things that people just do it for the love of it. Like, I'm sure Absolutely. there's plenty of people that like doing, you know, talky dramas, but they're not going to do it for 20 years if they don't make money. They, they lose interest quicker. I think... Horror, it's like, well, if I don't make any money, I'm still having a good time with my friends. And so it's one of those things I think you can sustain yourself for a while just off the love of it. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fair. Um, but I swear to God, we will talk about Video Palace. Uh, real quick, how um, it was uh, Bob and Ben, how did you guys wind up doing that BPRD TV movie? I'm a very <laughs> big fan of uh, Hellboy. Uh-huh. Um, uh, that was, uh, that was directly a result of having, uh, so when, uh, the, when the Blair Witch Project first came out, uh, Mike, uh, what produced a, a, uh, made for sci-fi channel, uh, thing called Curse of the Blair Witch that got, uh, you know, really high ratings and I think did a right. lot to kind of boost the profile. And I, uh, I was, I had just moved out to LA and they asked me to write it. Ed and Dan, I think ordinarily would have written it, but they were off, I think it can or something. They didn't have time. They were off being, you know, giant bigwigs. And, uh, I, I was, I was answering phones at a, at a corporate headhunting company in, in the Valley. And, uh, I was like, wait, I can quit my job and write Blair Witchy stuff. And a lot of it was the stuff that I had, uh, helped create in the first place. Like the first thing that they'd ever had me do on Blair Witch was sort of research and write the pitch tape, which you can still find online. Um, and so a lot of it was kind of extrapolating from that and then kind of creating the characters. And, and th by the way, this this and the BPRD thing tie directly into Video Palace. So we'll, oh, cool. we'll get Perfect. We'll, we'll, the, the, the technique, I don't, the thing is like, I feel like I didn't make it up, but nobody ever taught me this, but I came up with a way 
of writing a character briefing, basically, that an actor would memorize and then just be interviewed as themselves and have to uh, ha- have to give the answers that we scripted, but not not in my words, but in their own words. And it creates a very naturalistic uh, interview. Um, and, and so on Curse of the Blair Witch, I'd done that. And then uh, after Blair Witch opened and they were getting ready to make the sequel, uh, Artisan, who had released Blair Witch, asked me if I could do... Uh, they wanted to make two specials, one for Showtime when Blair Witch premiered, uh, and another one for Blair Witch 2 uh, for Sci-Fi Channel again. So like virtually back-to-back. And I'd been in L.A. for like a year, and I was getting to direct two projects. I, I, I was uh, uh, extremely excited and also terrified that I was about to destroy my career by sucking. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so we did Burkittsville 7, and the guy who was the head of marketing at Artisan at the time was a guy named John Hageman, uh, and he'd been the head of marketing when Blair Witch came out, and he kind of had approved me to do the first, uh, to, to do those two specials, and then abruptly left, like he wasn't there while, while we made them. But John had stayed in touch with me, and he was at Revolution Studios when the first Hellboy movie was coming out, and he wanted to do kind of a subversive, like Dateline NBC style uh, special about the BPRD that only really hinted at Hellboy, but was mostly about uh, a controversy amongst conspiracy theorists that the BPRD was a real thing. And so he kind of brought me on to do that, and we did that in conjunction with uh, with uh, Revolution and Sony. I got to very briefly meet Guillermo del Toro who oh, cool. uh, was a super nice guy. I got to meet him again a few years later and it was he was uh I had a longer chat with him then. But uh but yeah, yeah, I mean it was it it, it was a cool project and I had uh actually formed a company with Matt Compton who was who I'd met through Ed through because he had worked on the Blair Witch project, but Matt lived out here or lives out here still and he's a line producer and he and I formed a production company and we did a bunch of projects including a ton of stuff uh for Mike's company over the years. Right on. I think that's awesome. Uh, uh, hell yeah. Yeah. So, um, with Video Palace, what what was the what was like the the beginning? You know, like who had the first couple ideas? Where did it start? And then how did it ultimately lead into you know hitting Shutter, being what it became, what it is now? Um, yeah, I, I can start that story. Um, so uh, Nick and I, at the time, Nick was uh, uh, working at uh, Campfire with uh, me, and um, we had been brought in by Shutter to um, actually talk about market how to market Shutter, and you know, big part of our process uh, at Campfire is really kind of is doing a lot of research and and, and a specific focus on fandom, and and, and so. You know, we really kind of dove into um, how people how people talked about about Shutter, and the thing that we th- thought was really fascinating was that everyone described Shutter as the best video store from the from the '80s, like the best horror section from your favorite video store in the '80s. You know, because Shutter has all of these more obscure titles that none of the other streamers have or have. And, and their focus on horror was, you know, they were trying to explain it, but using this old term of the video store. And we thought that was really fascinating. And so we kind of talked to them about that in terms of, of how to market, how to describe, how to set Shutter up differently. And while we were having those conversations with the marketing team, we started thinking about stories that 
you know, horror stories and scary things that take place in and around video stores. And um, as we were developing ideas, the marketing folks at Shutter said to us, you know, um, we've just been been told that we uh, well, Sh uh, Shutter and AMC networks are all getting into podcasts, and um, you know maybe you should talk about this idea to uh, the folks who do podcasts, and um, and so they put me in touch with a fellow named Owen Shiflett. And uh, funny enough, I actually uh, met Owen many years earlier at a uh, at a conference about kind of new media and storytelling. And so um, we caught up, and we heard a little bit about their about about you know what they were doing with horror. And uh, Nick and I sat down, and, and we kind of built out a mythology for this story we had been batting around that involved a, an old video store. And we pitched that, Nick and I pitched that to Shudder, and Owen was like, this is really cool. And uh, I said, so what do you need to green light it? And he said, I'd need an outline of kind of what happens in every episode, and I, I need to know uh, some sense of, of, of how you're gonna end it, or where you're gonna end it. Um, and so Nick and I did a kind of, not, not necessarily a beat sheet, but we did a, 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 a page with, um, with kind of like breaking out each episode. And we sat down and we said, okay, every episode has to have something, a, a, a key scare, you know? And then we, we thought about obviously cliffhangers. And so we, we, we kind of beat out a first early version of Video Palace that, um, it didn't have all the characters that it has now, and and the characters weren't nearly as developed as they are, but it kind of had the general kind of plot and story in place. And it had, you know, there was, there, it, was it was hints at the mythology, but it wasn't very deep. And we, um, again, pitched that to Owen and team, and Owen was like, this is great, let's do it. And so once we started talking about let's do it, we got the budget, and it became clear, given the budget, that um, Nick and I, because of our, our full-time gigs uh, with clients, um, and, the, and the budget, quite frankly, is was really good for a podcast, but it wasn't um, it wasn't enough to sustain people who have families and need to uh, need to make money for the families to have uh, Nick and I on it full-time. Um, working, we like we couldn't get it done in the time and and within the budget, it would require us to turn away a bunch of client work, which wasn't going to happen at the time. And so um, we thought, well, okay, let's bring this opportunity out and see what we can do. And um, uh, Ben and 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 then Ben brought in Bob, but he also brought in uh, the producer um, of uh, uh, the producer uh, the pr producer of the film. And uh, the producer of the podcast, and um, and and took the the kind of outline that Nick and I did, and really beat it out into uh, the actual lengthy story that you hear. Um, and Ben signed on to direct, and that's when um, Nick and I kind of shifted to become, I guess, like co-creators and co-executive producers. So you know, we maintained our involvement throughout, but. Really, this was like you know Ben and Bob kind of got the story, and it was 
it was both enough, I think enough was in place that the framework was there, but it was also loose enough for the two of them to have fun with it and take it in interesting directions. Um, they'll talk about that. Um, um, and we were off to the races. And uh, Nick, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Um, I think the only, th that, that's all accurate. I can verify everything. Oh, and, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know what? Uh, 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 Liam, Liam uh, Finn. I, uh, I said the producer, but yes, I didn't Liam. say his name. Liam Finn. Um, so I think the only thing that I would add was in that when the story was a germ, I think what's, what for me, what's really important about great horror is that, um, that there's some kind of poignant subtext that it's really a, about something. And what we wanted to get at initially, and we wanted to make sure the DNA of this was in the treatment was that this is a, this is a dark satire. This is a story. Video palace is a story of the, um, of the dark side of, of collector culture, of arrested adolescence, of um, you know, kind of of kind of the geek life, and we wanted you know, to, we kind of wanted to make sure that, that that was something that that got explored. That we weren't, even though we're creating uh, this Mark Cambria character um, as our as our protagonist, that he's not. He's not necessarily, and, it, and the listeners may, may see, uh, see or hear themselves reflected in him, in his behavior, um, but that he's by, he was by no means a hero, and that we wanted a story that would, that would uh, give people or, or provoke people uh, to kind of take a look in the mirror about some, about some of the geek culture behaviors. Um. Moving, moving from you guys, Bob and Ben, uh, how did your, like, your involvement, did it kick off immediately when you guys got brought in? Was there, like, some sort of layover time? Um, it, it was kind of nuts because um, I, I was about to be a dad uh, when Mike first contacted me. It was probably, I don't know, uh, April of... 2018-ish, and uh, and he asked me if if I'd be interested in doing it. And and the thing is, Mike and I had been talking about doing like a, an original horror podcast for year, probably three or four years at that point. We'd been talking about doing it because we're both huge podcast fans, and um, like I, I love the idea of doing a first-person investigation. It's not exactly a found footage uh, approach. But there's a lot of stuff, uh, like I said earlier, that like carried over from Curse of the Blair Witch and the BPRDD Classified and some of the other stuff that I've done that uh, I, I felt like when I'd heard people do this stuff, and I'm not going to name names because I don't want to smear anybody, but I felt like they were kind of missing the boat because uh, when you're writing, you want to put your words in people's mouths. And, uh, and, and the way that I, like, I want to hear it sound as natural as possible and no matter how naturalistically I write dialogue, if you're reading dialogue, it's going to sound like written dialogue. So there sure. was there 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 was uh, I, I felt like there was a way to, to kind of make a kind of serial style podcast. Be, this is before Video Palace kind of even even entered into my life. There was a way there was a, a production approach and a writing approach where where you could where you could make it. Um, make it so that it felt very spontaneous and felt very uh, real. And, uh, and part of it's in the casting, but a lot of it's in the writing. And like I said, you know, like, for, like every interview in Video Palace 
was written uh, like if you were to look at the script, everyone's answer is in italics. It's like you know he talks about this and this and this and this, and in, instead of scripting their answers, we we took all of that and kind of wrote the answers to that in the bio that we gave the actors, even for auditions, but also you know for the actual recording, and then we had Chase. Uh, Williamson, who played Mark Cambria, literally interviewed him, and so if he had a follow-up question, he, Chase would just spout it out, and they would and they would have a natural reaction. And a lot of times, that ended up in the show. What what ends up with that? What you end up with that though is that you know what is three pages of script ends up being like thirty minutes of recording that needs to be cut down. Anyway, I'm getting way ahead of myself here, um, <laughs> but it was it was some it was something that Mike and I had been had been talking about for some time. So. When it when it when he brought it to me, I was very very interested in, in doing it right out, right off the bat. Uh, I'm also I, I was already a Shutter subscriber, uh, so I was excited to be doing something for Shutter. And in fact, Bob and I had been trying to figure out how to get a meeting with Shutter uh, around that time because we'd already done uh, Twenty Seconds to Live, and um, and so uh, and 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 Mike had had initially uh, kind of talked to me about writing it, and I wanted to bring in Bob uh, uh, for several reasons. One is I think Bob is a stronger writer than I am, uh, and and really really gets uh, episodic structure, and he's he's worked in episodic television, uh, and and so you know like I I knew that we didn't have a, a lot of time. In fact, this was this was April or May, and in our first conversation with Shutter, Owen said if he had his druthers, he would have the final thing in his hands in July, which was you know he knew at the time logistically impossible. But it was like it needed to be broken fast, and I didn't feel like, as a writer, I could break it on my own, and I didn't feel like I could break it as well as I could with Bob. And uh, and Bob and I really had a shorthand at that point because we'd been working together for so many years. Although it's the first thing we've ever co-written together, but we literally sat at his house and wrote it old school style, uh, you know, index cards on a, on a corkboard. Bob can probably talk more about the process. Yeah. Um, but but that was you know it, it was it was so fast uh, and, uh, compared to a project that Bob and I are working on now, which is probably going to get recorded started recording this week, which has been almost three years in the making. In this case, it was like, hey, are you available? A month later, we were writing. A month after that, we were recording. Like two months after that, the thing was done. Yeah, the the timing was kind of perfect because Ben and I had. Um we taken one of our episodes of 20 Seconds to Live and we're like, this might make an interesting TV pilot. So we started breaking it as a pilot, like, you know, network TV style, like cards on a board, acts and cliffhangers. And I'd, I'd worked on White Collar for a season, which is a show on the USA Network, and just learned from a bunch of great TV writers how to break television. So Ben and I had kind of practiced a bit. And like right after that pilot, like when we didn't even get very far in the development process, right after that, Ben called me with the Video Palace opportunity, and and he's right, it happened so quickly, and it was you know an incredible opportunity to work with Mike and Nick, and and just to jump in and with all you know both feet, but like yeah, we just set up two corkboards in my office, and we had the the ten you know episode breakdowns that needed to be kind of fleshed out into full episodes. And we just kind of TV style, we had, you know, 10 episode cards across the two boards. And then we'd, you know, do columns of, of note cards, you know, breaking each of the episodes. And like Mike had mentioned that there needed to be something scary in every episode. So every time there was a scare, we would mark that note card with a red dot or something so that you could actually look at all the boards and go, is there enough scares? And if not, we'd figure out, you know, new ways, you know, to add stuff. But like Ben and I had to quickly... 
I think that's some of the, what, the best things about the show is that we had to work so quickly that we just had to trust our gut and just, you know, make process oriented choices. And like every, every step along the way, we're pitching it to Mike and Nick who, you know, are the executive producers, they're, they're looking in and kind of giving us notes and making sure that we're still, you know, on the right track, you know, thematically and story wise. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was really fast, but a really just cool way to kind of dive in and, and make something and kind of make our own rules as we were going along. That's so awesome to hear. I had no idea that it was put together so quickly. Uh, and a question I've had, because it was the hook for me, is uh, where did the concept of the white tapes come from? As a collector, you've always heard of like a mythical tape or something, you know, like passed through hands of private collectors that never really existed. Uh, <laughs> who came up with that? I can jump in here, I think. But Mike, if I, it's been a while, so if any of this is apocryphal and you want to correct the record, go for it. If you just want, if you want to roll with, um, so my recollection is that when we wrote the original treatment, like very early stages, even in the the decks that went to Shutter Marketing, um, it was just like an arcane, arcane videotape, a series of them. We hadn't thought about uh, what the uh what was going to bring them together and at some point either mike or i suggested that it was it should be a white tape and we didn't know if that was going to hang around or not um and as we got talking to shutter we discovered we had no idea this existed that they had a show on the platform that sam sam zimmerman i believe is his last name hosted um where the backdrop for the show was physically rows and rows of white videotapes. Yeah. So once we saw that at all, and knowing that we were going to actually make shut like shutter an in-world uh, part of the story, we were going to enter that Sam was going to ended up being on it, and that we were going to play it as though Mark Cambria sold to Shutter. Um, it just became a, it became a no-brainer to uh, kind of merge our notion of white tapes and the fact that they've already established white tapes. Mike, how, how true? How true is all that? <laughs> it's um, I, I'll give it. I'll give it a Pinocchio and a half. So mostly true. Uh, mostly true. Okay. Okay. Um, if um, any of it, whatever was false was not false on purpose. <laughs> you know, um, in the in the in the first the uh, the first pitch meeting I had with Owen was at a, uh, uh, I was on a business trip out to L.A. I'm based in New York. And I go out to L.A. quite often um, with the work that I do. And uh, Owen met me at the bar at the hotel I was staying at. And, um, and we had a conversation. And he was telling me about, a bit about the podcast. He, and he talked to me. And, and this show that Nick referenced was one of their, their first originals. You know? And he described it as – he described what it was. And, and he had mentioned that their um, – their CEO, when, when, when they were doing it, they originally had Sam in front of just a regular video store set, you know, so like the tapes were all black and everything. And I think it was the CEO had said to them, it should look more surreal. Like, what if all the tapes were white, you know, and, um, and, and make it feel like a video store from an alien landscape or something like that. And so they did that. And um, Owen mentioned that to me as like just something that the the CEO of Shudder had suggested and had become part of the show. And so from there, it, for, for me, it was like, oh, 
that's brilliant. And it, it was a no-brainer to make it white, but it was also a very kind of conscious choice of like, hey, if we are pitching a story and it's got white tapes and we tie it into, you know, to Nick's point, we had already decided we were going to make uh, the fact that this was a podcast on Shudder part of the, the story world of the podcast. Um, um, what if, you know, if we tie it into um, something that Shudder has that's like a, vi a piece of visual weirdness and we actually give it a mythology behind it, we're like, they're going to be a hell of a lot more likely to greenlight our podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> it, was a it was a combination of it worked. It worked as a, uh, you know, it worked as a signifier of weird videotapes and it tied directly into Shudder as an entity. And, and, and it just seemed like, you know, that was a great way to try to really lure them in. And so Owen was the first one who kind of brought that up in the context of Video Palace. Wow, that is a really cool concept to hear about because, again, that's what hooked me is, like, as a collector, it just, it's a really cool story. And uh, I immediately, like, the second I finished it, I pulled into my driveway and I fired off the tweet that all led us here today. Albeit it took a couple weeks for people to notice, but I was like, I need to talk to these guys right now. Like, I need to know. Like, it was I, a very well done. I, uh, I remember, I remember when it came out, I, I don't know how early I was to Shudder, but I feel like I tried to be, like, hip to it, and I was like, yeah, you know, like, the site's cool, I like it, and, um... My girlfriend and I were going on this trip. It was like my last semester of college, and uh, we were going to Virginia. And I was like, "Hey, I really want to listen to this podcast thing." And she's like, "I don't know. I don't really like podcasts." And I was like, "Sure, sure, okay." And I was like, "Well, just listen to the first episode." And she's like, "All right, fine, you know." So we listened to episode one of Video Palace, like on the drive to campus, two days before we left. And she's like, "All right, you've hooked me." And so our entire oh, nice. trip from Akron, Ohio to Stanton, Virginia, where we we're going to go watch like a bunch of Shakespeare plays for four days, which was <laughs> not exactly thrilling to me. Um, we were, uh, we were making our trip down and we just, we listened to the rest of it. And like, we had only been dating for like six or seven months at that point, And she was like, some of this stuff is really cool. Some of it's just kind of like when you get too excited and I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, yeah, all right, that's fine, whatever. <laughs> but it was just, it was, it was fucking great. And it, it was just this nice addition to like a nice memory for, for me. I mean, like the least romantic thing imaginable that is Video Palace um, <laughs> combined with like, you know, like my first trip out of state with my girlfriend now of four years, three and a half years, whatever. Oh, wow. So, yeah, thanks, y'all. <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, <laughs> well uh, 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 we're all expecting wedding invites. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Come on. I told her, I was like, I'm going to interview the Video Palace guys. And she was like, oh, that's so cool. Is there a season two? And I was like, I mean, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that later. And she was like, all right, well, it'd be a lot cooler. <laughs> I was like, all right. Um, you should have it, have it officiated by the eyeless man. There you go. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I can cosplay. I'm a priest. <laughs> how um, how did the book happen? Were you guys involved, or was it just kind of like you know, the loose involvement of your property and someone else's work? No, that that was driven by us. So you know, okay. um, e everybody asked about season two, 
and 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 we actually started kind of brainstorming concepts for season two. And there's actually a few different ideas for a season two um, that have been floating around. And uh, and and um, unfortunately, Shutter's kind of dalliance with podcast and AMC Networks kind of investment in podcasts was done. In between yeah. the time that we released the first one, they were they kind of decided that you know budgets are limited and they wanted to focus they're a video streaming platform and they needed to focus on video content now you know the the thing about for, for nick and i especially the work that we do at campfire is oftentimes you know it's referred to as transmedia but a lot of it is about you know helping our clients deal with setting up franchises and and fan companies and so you know i think we have a fairly unique take on how you actually can build a franchise you know most of hollywood is like you don't you don't build a franchise you you buy it or you license it and that's where you get like marvel and star wars you know george right. lucas built the franchise and then and then disney bought it and right. you know marvel's comics that turned into movies and disney bought it um and <laughs> so and so we had ideas that franchises shouldn't be these things that require you know a a, a a $200 million mainstream film to launch. And, um, and we, and so our, our idea was like, let's put something out in a podcast, but let's make sure there's a deep enough mythology there that we could take it anywhere. And ideally, because we knew we were dealing with AMC and, and shutter could potentially turn into a movie or a TV series or something like that. And so, um, we looked at, video palace as and i think this is where the combination of of nick and i and then bob and ben because you know nick and i kept an eye on on the big picture and thinking about the mythology and is it loose enough where we felt like we could take video palace into any other media format um possible and and ben and bob were really focused on making sure that the story we were telling in, in the podcast form was going to be legitimately great and that the characters were going to be legitimately interesting and that it, it would feel like a, you know, a, com a complete work in and of itself, as opposed to like a teaser for something larger. Right. And uh, which is to me essential to, to, to the, to how you launch a franchise. People have to have to love that original story. Right. Um, and so, and so when we realized that we weren't going to get funding for a season two, um, you know, again, through uh, 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 various um, friends, in, in this case, Sam Ford as a friend who um, Nick and I both knew from uh, actually the MIT convergence culture days uh, at MIT, which was talking about all of this stuff, transmedia storytelling and whatnot. He ended up um, starting a experimental division at Simon & Schuster, where they were looking for uh, book ideas that come from unusual sources. And, and so Nick and I pitched the idea of a book set in the world of Video Palace. Um, that would, that would be, uh, you could read it on its own. You didn't have to read Video Palace to get it, but it would expand on the mythology of the eyeless man to a certain extent. And, mm -hmm. um, and so we pitched the, the book, which is, you know, there's an overarching story there where uh, the author of the book is, uh, uh, is basically stringing a narrative along. And then in between those chapters are 
um, short stories written in the first person by a variety of authors, including uh, Ben and Bob, uh, um, and and um, and a wealth of other really really great writers who all came aboard, and we um, we 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 kind of treated the process a little bit like the way marketing works, where we wrote what's called a brief, which kind of gave each of the writers a setup of of the eyeless man, gave them a little bit of knowledge about the about the backstory and the mythology and 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 some of the themes that that video palace was designed to cover and then basically told them to tell a story that hits those marks but completely bring themselves to it and make it whatever you want to be and so um, the stories were varied and they have you know a variety of different points of view and, and lived experiences which I think which I love about it and and it's the overall mythology is kind of comes into play in between each of the stories. Um, and so it wasn't a direct sequel. It's not a direct sequel to the podcast, but it does expand, I think, on the mythology. And there are actually a lot more hints um, about what's going on in the text, especially the text from the, the, the characters who are the authors of the book um, um, in particular about where things could go or where they might go. And so, um, and so, yeah, that was fun. And then as a result of the book, we got to do an audiobook version, <laughs> which is not the podcast because the stories are being read, but it was fun to release three of the stories in the Video Pops podcast feed. And, um, and we love the fact that, you know, a lot of people came to the podcast as a result of reading the book. And a lot of people came to the book as a result of listening to the podcast. So it's kind of, to me, it's kind of step two. And, and we do hope that something else will come out of the Video Palace universe. Um, but but it's, it's early days to be able to talk about anything like that. But yeah, so this was us. And, and Simon and Schuster, when they said they were open to the book, we reached out to our friends at Shudder. And we said, hey, we have this opportunity. And they were incredible. They were like, this sounds fantastic. Let's do it. So Shudder was really supportive of the book. Um, sorry. I, <laughs> I was reading what my next question was going to be and then just got caught up in how poorly I wrote it. And I was just like, yeah, I, I nailed it. <laughs> Man, dangling participles. <laughs> I think it's um, I think it's great to see that Shudder was supportive of it. In the back of my mind, I was really worried that you were going to be like, "Yeah, you know, they dicked us over, and then they dicked us over again." So I guess there's some good, you know, that came out of it. Like it's cool, Joe Bob Briggs gets a a new life, but also I'd like a season ten of Video Palace. So you know, <laughs> we'd love to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, look, look. <laughs> Funds are limited, and right. you know Joe, Joe Bob Briggs is a is an example of that. It's Joe Bob Briggs is a franchise that pre-existed Shutter, right. and and Shutter bringing Joe Bob Briggs to the platform means that all the Joe Bob Briggs fans, uh, whether nostalgic or today, come to the platform as a result. And you know, look, the streaming business is very different from television, and it's different from podcasts. And you know, they've got a They've got to build, you know, Shutter needs to continue to grow in order to get bigger budgets to make more original stuff. 
But, mm -hmm. you know, what I what I love about about what they're doing on Shutter and they are strategic, you know, I don't uh, Shutter treated us well, I believe. And I, I think Bob and Ben and Nick would agree. Um, 100%. I don't, yep, I don't absolutely. think Shutter didn't do anything with malice or anything to rip us off or anything like that. They've been great partners the whole way. And I'm really not just saying that because I've had experiences, you know, like, for instance, the studio that acquired Blair Witch and is no longer around. Um, uh, I've had experiences with with Hollywood companies who really have acted with malice uh, over things yeah, or have... Yeah you know, wanted to dick or over just, the creators. Or even just tone deafness, you know, like when you, yes. when you, when you give a script or a cut of the podcast to, to the Shutter execs, you know, at, at the beginning, because we just didn't know them that well, you know, Bob and I were used to kind of gritting our teeth and being like, okay, here come the executive notes. And then the notes were often really good. And even if, even if the notes represented like, oh, we have to go do a bunch of work, it was because they were right. Like they loved the genre and they cared about what yeah. we were doing. And so, like, like I don't, I don't feel like I ever got a note from them that I was like, ah, oh, God, we have to cut out my favorite part. That never happened. Right. It was, it was always like, hey, this needs to be more clear. Yeah, I have, I have nothing but love for Shudder, and then, frankly, I think every horror fan should be a subscriber. I mean, you look at the the foreign films that they acquire and bring to the platform, and they're they're some of the best horror movies I've seen in decades. Right. Uh, those films. And, and, and we only have access to them because Shudder has the funds to acquire them and, and the willingness to put them on the streaming platform. So, you know, so, so uh, you know, I'm a big believer and I know that their originals programming is only going to grow, you know, as long as the as long as the Shudder platform does. Um, but, you know, they they um, they Shudder loves video palace you know it's one of those things where it's like it, it did really well for shutter in in some ways and the the book is out there so the 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 franchise is growing it's it's not huge you know because it's still a podcast but the podcast interesting thing about podcasts in general and books is that they're they're both far more evergreen than movies for some reason mm -hmm. you know and even even tv series like Yes, they're there, and people can rediscover them. But it, like TV series shows tend to be they tend to be the big TV shows that the younger generation rediscovers, like Seinfeld or Friends or you know The Office. There's huge pop culture pieces that people go back to for comfort food, and um, and Shutter isn't. I mean, Video Palace isn't there. You know, it's not nearly that big. So it's still a a, a, a developing franchise, I would call it. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, I would say it's, de it's developing, but one of the things I think that we're all really proud of is that it is, and I don't know that I can name another one, another franchise that does exactly this, but we are a media horror franchise. The idea behind the book, behind the podcast, is steeped in, in media horror. And as long as there are people having unhealthy relationships with new kinds of media or old kinds of media, there's, there, will for, there will forever be the opportunity for more Video Palace stories. <laughs> um, I have a couple questions for uh, Bob and Mike as individuals, and then back to questions for everyone. Um, Bob, 
the Kane and Lynch thing? What is, uh, <laughs> what's your involvement? Like, how involved are you? Um, that was, that was a long time ago. It was the same time, um, when I, I'm not involved anymore. I wrote a draft, uh, with, um, my first movie was, uh, co-written with Jiho Lee, who directed The Air I Breathe, and we had a great ensemble cast, with Brendan Fraser and Kevin Bacon and Sarah Michelle Gellar. And then we came out of that, and Lionsgate saw the movie and loved it, and they were like, they wanted to work on something with us. And so we pitched an on an adaptation of Kane and Lynch, which uh, was, at the time, an unreleased video game. So all we had was artwork and a general story idea of what the game was going to be. And so they hired us to... Uh, um, they hired us to, uh, to, to adapt that, but they hired another writer at the same time. So we had competing drafts and we uh, lost. <laughs> they picked the other draft and I think, and Lionsgate still owns our draft. We did some really, we, we did kind of, the other draft was like a big giant Marvel movie size version of Kane and Lynch. We did the yeah. Michael Mann, Michael Mann kind of gritty crime version of it. Uh, so who knows? Uh, Lionsgate owns it. I'd love for them to make it, but yeah, we uh, we did a couple drafts for them, and then we uh, we went away and did other things. But uh, that's kind of what that's when you, you know, when you write for a living in Hollywood, you get used to that. But uh, sure. yeah, and Kana Lynch is still on it's still on my resume, and you know, I I, I hope they, I hope they make it someday. It's a really cool property. Right on. Okay, um, Mike, I saw you had tweeted about it last week. Uh, the last couple years that have become the Blair Witch World. Uh, you, uh oh! I'm gonna get myself in trouble here, aren't I? No, no, no. I, <laughs> I, I think Blade and I agree. If not, you know, all six of us are in the same boat on it. Do you have any positive thoughts on what the last few years have been? Do I mean all of you, uh, everyone? But you know, is it doing more good for you guys? Is it doing more harm? Anything <laughs> at all? Yeah, you know, um, so, I, 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 well, I should preface this by, and I think Ben and I actually have different takes on this, uh, which I think is good and healthy, because, um, you know, I'm not involved and have not been involved in anything really um, Blair Witch related um, since after the first one. I mean, you right. know, when, when the first sequel uh, came out, we were consulted, but our ideas were not used, and 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 you know they made it with a different film team, um, and you know we had to let it go in that sense. Um, back then, uh, I did not I did not think the direct the Book of Shadows. I did I I didn't think that I thought that hurt the franchise because it was made by filmmakers who weren't interested in telling a story in the franchise. They were interested in in telling a media-focused story about how people perceive shaky camera and, and that to be real and, right. and how it's not real, you know? And that's a, that's a heady theme for a, a, a horror, for the horror genre. I mean, in many ways, it's, 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 you know, they took it in the direction of media horror where we've taken Video Palace in a much different direction. But it wasn't appropriate. Like, you know, it, it wasn't appropriate for the franchise and it wasn't, it didn't further the franchise. And, and quite honestly, I think we all had ideas about what Blair Witch could be as a franchise. And it was never more found footage movies and more teenagers running around in the woods. You know, it was never that way or young people running around in the woods. It was, it was never that. That was never gonna be a sequel in our version of the Blair Witch universe. Um, 
but I feel like the Blair Witch universe could have been amazing. But, you know, for a variety of reasons, artisan entertainment, um, what, you know, felt like, hey, we got this, you know, and that they didn't need the original folks. And, uh, you know, later the, 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 the franchise was purchased by Lionsgate when artisan went under. And, um, you know, Lionsgate has some people on it, I imagine, who are kind of running the franchise more as like legacy IP that they own and how can they exploit it to make money, you know? Right. And so, so you know, what it, it, the, the existence of these things, like the video game and now this kind of fan fiction contest to make a game with a structure yeah. that's set up, like, you know, do I have an issue with these things? Do I wish that they actually flowed into a real mythology that, that kind of continued it? Yes. Um, and, but that's not what Lion, Lionsgate's game isn't like to grow the mythology and grow the story. Their game is to make money off of this IP yeah. that they own. Right. And that's how, yeah. that's how they're going to do it. So I sort of understand it. But yeah, I'm not a fan. And I'm not a fan when they talk about it being canon. Because like, to me, the video game, you know, uh, uh, which I played, is is it can't be canon. It, they bringing in themes and things that don't belong in the franchise. They just don't, you know. The yeah. uh, the PTSD from the war and all that stuff. That's not a part of the franchise. It can be a part of a character, but it's it's, you know, a, a lot of what they're doing doesn't like like what they've done is they take the mythology. And they are, they're taking what they can keep from it and they're just getting rid of or ignoring the things that, that create, that make it a challenge to tell uh, more current stories, if that makes sense. You know, yeah. like the cadence of when the Blair Witch comes. And so, you know, like this, the recent, the 2016 Blair Witch movie for me was like, um, and again, I'm going to acknowledge that I can't watch that movie with any kind of real distance from it because I have ideas about what those films should have been. Um, and, you know, who's to say? Maybe they're right. Um, I appreciated what, the, what they did in 2016, and I do feel like they really genuinely tried to make a movie within the mythology and not break it the way the first sequel did. Um, and so for that, I really appreciate it. But quite honestly, I just, I just don't think this is a franchise that should continue on into the future. I think there are stories in the past, in the mythology of the Blair Witch, that would make infinitely more interesting movies, um, better movies, and and frankly, I think better uh, uh, better earning movies. But that's not, you know, I, I think for whatever reason, Blindsgate has decided that the Blair Witch is a franchise of people running scared in the woods, and right. so <laughs> that's that's what we're going to get out of the franchise. And, and for me, the most recent announcement, the reason I, I tweeted that it was breaking my heart, I think, or hurting me, is because, not because they're doing a contest or that there's a platform there, but because the setup. They said, oh, the setup of the stories has to be a bunch of kids going to a Blair Witch-themed music festival, and right. then chaos ensues. And I'm like, that's just not, that's, that's not a story. That's not a story that, that, that is, that's not the foundation for a good Blair Witch story that feeds into the mythology. That's a clearly designed exploitation. That's a way of saying, 
We want a current story. We want pop music that we can exploit in our story. We want, you know, modern kids. We want all these things. And, you know, God bless them for doing it, but it's, it, to me it's not the right way to manage the franchise. You know, but look, there's other Blair Witch things in development, and I think, you know, I hope that we'll get to see some things that actually are um, more relevant to the original mythology. But we'll see. Uh, ben, do you do you want to <laughs> also weigh in on it? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I I agree pretty much across the board with what Mike's saying. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when uh, the 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 movie that uh, that Ed and Dan had kind of pitched as the as what their immediate sequel would have been would have been like a, a colonial era horror movie kind of like the witch a little bit right. years later. Uh, and I always felt like, yeah, take away, take away your toys. Don't make an, like within the mythology, we say that this thing recurs like whatever it's like every 45 years or something. So, mm-hmm. so having an immediate sequel in the here and now, although I understand the necessity of it, if you're trying to, you know, turn it into a, a license to print money, um, uh, it, it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't jibe, I don't think, with the mythology. And, and a big part of my job at the beginning, both when I wrote that pitch tape and then also like, uh, uh, when I was doing all the specials that I did, another thing that Artisan had hired me to do was to create like the, I created a Bible. Today it would be a Blair Witch Wiki. I'm sure there's a, an infinitely more thorough Blair Witch Wiki. So I had to read every comic book, every young adult novel, every, Everything I had to read them all before they went out and give them notes on like here's how you keep this consistent within the mythology, um, and and so for a year or so I did that and uh, you know I knew when the Adam Wingard movie was coming out, like I assumed that they were going to take some liberties with the mythology and they did but it wasn't egregious and it mm-hmm. wasn't overly reverent either like I thought I thought that they hit that that part of it okay like I went in sort of like ready to be because nobody had consulted me not that they needed to but um but like I, I was just like ready to be like oh you know like you know you ha- you have you know ellie kedward is a character in the movie or something you know something something really annoying that that would uh, turn my stomach in in the mythology way and i actually felt like they did a really good job of keeping it more or less in line um but i also kind of reached the conclusion that i think mike is talking about which is you know because i went to see that movie opening night and i went and saw it with dan myrick at the hollywood arc light uh, when that was still a thing. And so like opening night of a new horror movie coming out, you know, like it, it should be a packed theater. And it was like about a third full on opening night. And I was like, Oh, this doesn't bode well. And it was actually a flashback to when I went to see Blair, Witch two in a theater on opening night. And there was like hardly anyone in the theater. I'm like, there just isn't the interest, uh, yeah. in seeing another movie like this. And I think it, it, whereas Blair, Witch two had just gone like so far astray and just kind of, I, I think that Joe Berlinger maybe had a good idea for a movie, but it wasn't a good idea for a sequel to a pre-existing other movie. Like it didn't, it didn't mesh very well, and it was a a big weird risk for them to take making a movie that was so far out. And then the Adam Wingard movie, and I'm a humongous Adam Wingard fan, but the Adam Wingard yeah, movie, um, yeah, you couldn't have made a better filmmaker to make Blair Witch Three in a laboratory than Adam and Simon Barrett. They're they're just they they have it. But I, what I'll never know is like what was the what were the directions that they were given from the executives? How much meddling was coming from that side, or you know how much were they kind of left to their own devices to make the movie? 
and in a way it almost played like almost a remake of the original uh like maybe a little bit like the t- 2011 uh prequel to the thing where it's like so much like the original but doesn't have the spark of whatever and so it <laughs> although it's not it's not a bad movie i don't feel like it it rose to be the thing that everyone wanted to see and maybe nobody really cared about seeing a new Blair Witch movie, whatever, you know, uh, 15 years or 17 years after the original had come out. Yeah. Um, as far as the video games and stuff, I'm not really a gamer, so I haven't played the video game. And when I see it come up now, it's like, I don't know, it, uh, it never hurts me because pe- I'll, I'll get like every executive that, or I wouldn't say every executive, but, but people who I've met with in the industry or whatever will reach out and be like, hey, cool, I saw this. Are you getting a piece of this? And I'm always like, no. But, uh, you know, it, it reminds people that I exist. So I don't, you know, because I, I created the stick man for the original movie. And right. so whenever that stick man is used, every, people are always like, do you get a royalty? I'm like, no, I do not get a royalty. But, uh, uh, but, but it's, you know, to me, it's cool that it's still out there. And that, that was kind of how I felt in the 2016 uh, Blair Witch movie, too. It was like, it, it's cool that, the, that, it's, that I was whatever part that I was of creating something that is compelling enough that people are still trying to figure out how to find a place for it. And maybe it is in gaming, and maybe it is in these other things. I wish they wouldn't uh, jettison the mythology, because I think, based on my experience with like Curse of the Blair Witch and all that, I think the mythology is one of the things people really loved about it. And, yeah. uh, and so when you just kind of pretend the mythology is no longer important, then really you're kind of reducing it to just like a, you know, I, it's not a slasher movie, but it's a slasher movie formula. In that it's like, yeah, we're just going to introduce a bunch of characters and then off them one after the next, you know, for your enjoyment. And uh, nothing against slasher movies. I love slasher movies. It's just that's not what this was. But you're absolutely right, Ben. I mean, just to piggyback on that, in in my idea of Blair Witch as a franchise, Blair Witch is not a found footage franchise. It, It to me. The only movie that should have been found footage in quotes is the original Blair Witch Project. And every movie after that should have been a different style, but tapping into the mythology. To me, what people really loved and what captured their attention about Blair Witch was this backstory, you know? And I get it because a lot of the people who are making decisions about the franchise probably weren't alive back then to have that experience of you know, diving into this mythology that existed on the internet before the movie came out, you know, and a lot of people were going to see the movie um, with that mythology in mind. Uh, And I think they, those people had a slightly different experience, but you know, it's not a, Blair Witch should not be a franchise that is a formula, that is built on a formula like slasher films or like found footage movies. It's a, it's a mythology that, that if, played right can exist in a lot of different forms of media and can do it really well where each piece is a unique individual story but as a whole they should ladder up to this larger understanding of this Blair Witch myth and I don't think any of the things that have come after the first movie do that um so I remember not to not to date myself or to like knock you guys i was born in 95 so i was much much later to seeing all of these things but i remember hearing that like you guys the team as a whole had done so well with like the mythology the website everything that it was beyond believable 
it was just like absolutely taken by many people to be like a true real story and then finally like the thing that broke it was like the soundtrack or the mixtape like it was like there was a typo negative song that came out in like 94 but it, they were like oh this mixtape was from like 1992 or something along those lines is there any reality to that any truth to that well, the internet well, was brand new. I mean, the, 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 like the the internet had only been around for a few years, and it was just right. a growing thing. So, to me, like when you have a situ- like it happens with virtually any form of media, yeah. like you know, War of the Worlds, this, and 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 uh, from what I am uh, understand the the stories about Orson Welles' War of the Worlds have been greatly exaggerated about how many people mm-hmm. believed it. But I will say, I, I would get into arguments with people, you know, at, at the grocery store who swore to me that they knew the Blair Witch legend and and you know and i made up a third of it you know like i <laughs> i i knew that it wasn't real and um but i think because it was a time where you know it's like it's on the internet so it must be real but mm-hmm. mike can probably speak way better to all that too yeah well, that's yeah today, I mean, you somehow, know so <laughs> yeah that's well true. you know the, the interesting thing is is that we weren't actually trying to fool people into thinking it was real for mm-hmm. us we were kind of like the mode of storytelling that we're using is this kind of realistic storytelling. And, and that's because Dan and Ed were really inspired by, you know, um, the old series In Search Of, which, which was um, really kind of a scary series, but the reason it was scary was because everything was presented as this could be real, not this is real, but this could be real, you know? And, um, and, and so they used the documentary, a, a traditional TV documentary format to tell stories about aliens and and you know cryptids and 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 unusual experience witchcraft and things like that and um and 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 movies like the legend of boggy creek that kind of played with the the, the, whether something is real or not you know uh, those were the inspiration points for blair witch for ed and and dan and so um you know i i think the the you know, the, the found footage concept was just frankly something that kind of grew organically and was like the hook for that first film. But um, yeah, I don't, I, I, I think that people, you know, ha- people would call hacks and films, like mm-hmm. even the, the day after the actors appeared on like the Tonight Show, you know what I mean? Like the actors would have appeared on the Tonight Show and the next day people would call us up and, 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 scream at our uh, uh at the woman who used to answer the phones for us carol um they used to scream at her that like you know you people are making money exploiting the deaths of those kids you know and she'd be like they, they were on the tonight show last night they're they're right. alive they're fine so there was a lot of confusion quite frankly but uh, the people who were hardcore fans they knew it was fiction going in and, and I think what happened with it is that's an example of how narratives can get away from you online because it was presented straight and there wasn't a big obvious like this is fiction flashing around. Um, when people shared the story, the websites, uh, we found that a lot of people would give the context of like, this is totally real, even when they knew it was fake, oh, that okay, they were yeah. sending their friends to it and saying it's totally real. And yeah. that people were taking their friends to the movie and saying this is totally real. Um, to amp up the scares for their friends, you know, because the reality is, is human nature. We love to scare each other. We love yeah. to see people who are scared. 
<laughs> you know, and um, and and I think Blair Witch w was at at a certain point. It was almost a tool that people used to scare their friends. Well, and you know, I mean, to to show how much the internet has grown up since then too. It's like, do, does anyone know of one person who thought Video Palace was real, even though it was presented exactly the same way? Like, right. it, you know. It never said, you know, Video Palace, a completely fiction podcast. Like, we just go into it. But I think that, you know, anyone with even the slightest bullshit detector realizes right off the bat that it's, it's a yarn. You know, it doesn't matter how good the performances are. It doesn't matter how good anything is. I, I, you know, I think people go into that stuff expecting that it's fiction now and, and that people are playing with the form. I did, I did find people who either thought it was real and were asking other people who believed that portions of it were real, like the myth of the eyeless man or the white tapes and that we were building on top of that. But I've seen, I mean, certainly not nearly to the scale of Blair Witch, but I yeah. was, I've been surprised that some people have taken the bait. And we even went so far as to interview a bunch of real experts, including Sam Zimmerman and and Steve Barton and Eric Spudick, who's a real VHS collector, who's in a bunch of movies about, uh, like documentaries about VHS uh, collection, and Brian Collins. Like, we brought on these real people, and Adam Green, of course, um, uh, all playing themselves. So if you've heard any of them on a podcast, like, you know, Adam Green has a weekly podcast. Right. Uh, you know, like the whole idea was to kind of be like, hey, th you know, like th 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 there's an undercurrent of real in this. And then we like, you know, snuck in, uh, you know, Jacob Manders uh, uh, played by actor Joel McCrary, like in that in that montage. And then the story takes off and we never go back to a real person. But, you know, in, in Blair, which we actually do kind of a similar thing where we're interviewing the, the townies and all the locals. And uh, and, you know, it, it, it creates a sense of credibility. But it's, it's interesting to me because, again, like people really did believe it was real. I just think it's because back then, if somebody saw it on the Internet, it was like, well, you know, in Internet can't lie. You know, it, it was as good <laughs> as if you, if you saw it in the dictionary or in an encyclopedia or something. It's like, well, that must be real because someone took the time to write it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, sorry, it's on the Internet, so it's real. I, I can't stop laughing about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> moving, moving away from the past um what is like what's what's next for all of you either as individuals as a group you know is there going to be a second video palace book uh like what's what's everyone working on what is what's everyone got going on okay that you can legally talk about sure like, yeah that, that you yeah. can actually talk about well, I'll, I'll say that uh, Bob and I have a project that we've been working on, and I, I will talk about as much of it as I can talk about. I can't say what it's called uh, or who we're doing it for, but it's for a humongous audio platform that, you know, hopefully you will be... It's a platform you definitely have heard of. And, um, and we're, it's, a, it's, uh, it's a little bit... It's not like Video Palace in that it's kind of a straight-up audio drama, uh, but it is horror, and uh, it, it's, it's a monster... Uh, project, and we're supposed to start recording it this Thursday. Like we, uh, in theory, have a record date, and we've been working on it forever. Right on, hell yeah! Is there anything else safe to talk about from anyone else? Bob, is there more we can say? Oh, about uh, not, mm, not really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's cool, and hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to talk about it soon. 
Um, yeah, I mean, and, and I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at my big board full of projects, and that's the main thing uh, Ben and I have been working on. I've got scripts in development. I know Ben does too. We've all got development slates of things that we're trying to do, but I think that uh, that new audio project is the thing that's most uh, visceral in, in our immediate future and that we're super excited about. Right on. Okay. Um, oh, we always ask what everyone's uh, top five movies are and then the worst movie they've ever seen. It does not have to be horror. People always want to give us horror, which is fine. Um, but yeah, if, if someone would like to start with that. Nobody would. I will give my list here. Uh, cool. So. <laughs> now go ahead, somebody. I'm, I'm scrambling I, I to think of what my top I don't necessarily, would be. Yeah. I don't necessarily I want to start, but um, I love doing that. But uh, I will say, <laughs> in terms of uh, in terms of upcoming projects, um, oh yeah, we have we have a uh, uh, have, we have a lot of, of things coming up soon from Campfire, which is the yeah. company that I co-founded and that we do, and so you know we'll, we've got something kind of fun happening in Los Angeles in the first week of November. I can't really talk about it because it hasn't been announced. Um, and we've got some other things on deck that I'm, I'm super excited about um, that should be a lot of fun. Um, and I, I, can't, I can't be more um, open than that. And I think, you know, in the next year again, you know, developing original projects is a, a slow process for me because uh, I do have this company that I'm, I'm you know, the co-founder of, and that is the, the kind of what I would call the day job. And so uh, working on original projects is something that happens on my own time when I'm not uh, with the family or with the company. Um, right. So there are some things, but nothing I can talk about now. Let's see if, if you, I guess I'll take the jump in and start. Um, I, I, I wasn't prepped for my top five movies. I'm so sorry. what I'm going to give you, that's Nobody okay. I'm going to, I'm going to give you my top five things that I'm, um, I'm loving right now. Mm -hmm. How about that? Okay. So, um, I'm in the, um, I'm in the middle of, let's see. Well, the top five things that I'm loving now are things that I can think of as huge for me for horror films. Uh, uh, I always bring up two very old films. One is Todd Browning's freaks, which, Oh yeah. Uh, uh, hits up my my um, love of kind of grimy carnival culture, I guess, <laughs> and horror together. And also, I love it that it's um, it's just uh, it's 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 very challenging. It was challenging when it came out to society, to the moral morality of society then, and I think it's still a challenging movie for uh, people today. And um, that's one of the reasons why I love it. Um, I, I, another uh, old film that I love is a film called Spider Baby, which stars a very old Lon Chaney. Um, and, I, you know, it's, I, I love this film. It's so weird. It's so bizarre. It makes almost no sense. Um, but, uh, uh, but it's also, it's also, it's just a blast and I tend to watch it once a year. Yeah. Um, so I, I recommend Spider Baby. Um, I've been on a kick of watching um, films from, oh my God, and now the filmmakers, Nick, you're going to have to remind me, but he made um, The Stuff and Q, 
the, you know, the horror movie. Yeah, Larry, Larry, Larry Cohen. Larry Cohen. Larry Cohen. Yeah. So I'm on a Larry Cohen kick these days, and I'm watching, you know, It's Alive movies and Maniac Cops and uh, Maniac Cop movies, and uh, I'm just loving Larry Cohen right now. Um, so let's see. So that's, is that, what is that? Is that three? And then, mm-hmm. um, oh, boy. Now I got to get into, uh, um, what should we call it? Um, and, and I'm sorry, I'm like, I'm like saying um a lot because, <laughs> because I'm really bad with names right now for some reason. I'm just That's like, okay. I'm, it's my, fine. My, the what? We understand. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I wasn't prepared, but I'm I'm reading a book right now that Guillermo del Toro is turning into a movie. It's uh, I want to say Midnight Alley, but that's not it. It's um, Nick. Well, you you'll know this, right? What what movie? Yeah, is yeah. It's it's a, it's Night Nightmare Alley. Nightmare the, Alley. Ad, Nightmare Alley. He adapt he so, adapted with with Kim Morgan. Yes. So I, I I'm I'm in the middle of reading the book Nightmare Alley, which I never read, uh, shockingly, despite my love of all things carnival, and I'm absolutely <laughs> adoring. I'm I'm halfway through it, and I am adoring this book. Well, hell yeah! You know, Mike. You know, there's an original. There's a earlier movie, I think, from the '50s with Tyrone Power. That's yes. supposed to be really good. Yes, I've heard it's good, but I, I I wanted to read the original book before I got into any adaptation. Yeah, yeah. I saw Guillermo del Toro's, and I'm loving it. It's it's um it's taking me back almost. It's like a a grittier, darker uh, geek love. Nice. <laughs> In a way. So yeah. I don't know if anyone else wants to go. I I made a list. While Mike was talking, I made a list. Um, I I mean, if you ask me again tomorrow, my list might be different. Of uh, course. But here here were the five that jumped into my head uh, immediately. And they're they're like all all comfort food and all just things that I I, I adore. Uh, Number one, the Coen Brothers, Miller's Crossing. Um, Yeah. Which I only recently found out is loosely based on an old noir movie called The Glass Key, which I still have never seen, but I want to check it out. Um, and uh, I mean, t- I, I've watched that movie uh, since it came out. I've I've probably I don't know how many times I've seen it. I've seen it so many times. Everything about that movie is perfect. There's uh, there's nothing I would change about it. Best casting, best some of their best. I love the Coen Brothers, but it's it's definitely it's their movie that that I think holds uh, stands up to the test of time. Earlier, I brought up John Carpenter's *The Thing*, um, uh, the greatest movie the, of all time. The 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 only feature I've gotten to direct so far is called *Alien Raiders*, and and as much as I was able to in my limited uh, budget and scope and short time frame, was to make it as much of an homage to *The Thing* as I possibly could. Um, I I love *The Thing*. I again, great cinematography, great acting, great script. Uh, great everything, and actually, I, I recently rewatched the 2011 sequel, and I was like, you know, this movie. Actually, I remember hating it when I saw it in the theater. I was like, this movie <laughs> isn't so bad. It's just, it's not. There's no way for it to be good enough. It'll never be good enough to be the sequel to, to or the prequel to the thing. There's just no way for it to be that good. Um, I, I don't know what they could have done to it. It, it was an unwinnable war for them to try and make a better one. Then uh, the next one on my list is uh, the amazing uh, Swedish uh, horror movie "Let the Right One In." Oh um, fuck yeah! Sorry, which I saw. I saw <laughs> no, please. I saw that at Fantastic Fest. Actually, when my movie uh, my movie premiered at Fantastic Fest, and I showed up and I didn't know anybody, and I was feeling shy and weird. 
and because I was a filmmaker, I got to go see whatever was coming on. I could just walk into any any screening, and I was like, okay, cool. Let the right one in. No idea what the fuck that is, and I uh, just <laughs> wandered in, and I I didn't I didn't even read the synopsis. I knew nothing. And so for the first 30 minutes, I thought it was about a kid who was going to go crazy and a serial killer who lived in his building who was going to mentor him, which is probably <laughs> a pretty good idea for a movie. But it, but it turned out not to be that. And uh, I, it's a movie I revisit a lot. It's gorgeous. The cinematography is amazing. The acting, the kids in that are both just phenomenal, off the charts. Everything about that, so, just some perfect shots. Like in, in my version of One Perfect Shot, there's a shot in a pool at the end that is the most perfect cinematic oh, yeah. uh, shot ever uh, then I would I would have Pan's Labyrinth uh, Guillermo del Toro's I think Guillermo del Toro's best film um, it's uh, it's dark it's fantastical it has some of the creepiest imagery I've ever seen again an amazing uh, child actor in the lead um, it's gorgeous to look at uh, like it's a movie that I that I revisit a lot but it's also like like a lot of kid kitty kind of movies that I grew up with like uh like regular old labyrinth, for instance, or whatever. Like those things, just don't they? When they go dark, they don't go dark as Pan's Labyrinth does. And I feel like that plus Del Toro's uh, uh, previous Spanish language film, The Devil's Backbone, uh, are movies we don't talk about enough. They're they're really just gorgeous and influential. And and I I don't feel like I love Del Toro's work, but it's it's my favorite film he's ever done. And then the last one is a documentary, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, the Errol Morris documentary, which again is a movie that I, I've seen dozens of times and it's uh uh the only one on this list that i would say is kind of lighthearted and and has no <laughs> curse words um it's uh it's basically a study of uh obsession between uh intercutting between a lion tamer uh a guy who creates artificially intelligent robots a mole rat specialist and a topiary gardener who cuts animals out of plants shot by uh robert richardson one of the best cinematographers who ever lived and, uh, and directed by Errol Morris, and I think it's the first time Errol Morris used his Interotron device that he created so people could look right into the camera while they were being interviewed. And uh, it's, it's just such a weird, weird-ass movie. Um, and, and if you haven't seen it, I think, I think you can find it on Vimeo in its entirety. I don't think it's on any of the regular streaming platforms, but I think somebody just uploaded it to Vimeo. Can't recommend it highly enough. And then the worst movie, I, I, I'm always loath to do this because I don't want to crap on anyone's work, but right. I have to be honest, I paid money to go into a movie theater and see the trauma film, Class of Nukem High Part 2 Subhumanoid Meltdown. And even as someone who was kind of wishy-washy about trauma movies, but liked some of them, like Toxic Avenger and Sergeant Kabuki Man and stuff like that, I found that movie uh, underwhelmed on levels I was not prepared for. Like it was just one <laughs> giant cocaine-fueled in-joke between the people who made it. And, uh, and, I, and I actually sat in a movie theater and, and, and watched watched that uh, all the way through and I, I don't remember it well I just remember uh, I just remember everything every element of it not ringing false so hopefully I bought somebody enough time for the, someone else to come up with their list yeah. Yeah. I got a list I'll hop in do it I guess um, I'll make it quick too I'm a big I'm a big Altman guy it's hard to just pick one but I, I if I had to because um, I'm also a big Elliot Gould person it'd be the long goodbye uh, the aforementioned Rosemary's Baby, George Romero's Martin. Uh, oh, wow. Film shot in, in and around Pittsburgh. Um, Jack Clayton's The Innocence, which was an adaptation of the Henry James story, Turn of the Screw, a great, uh, great gothic horror film. And then just to show that I'm not uh, completely humorless, 
Uh, Lost in although I think Rosemary's Baby is sort of a comedy. Uh, Lost in America is my favorite Albert Brooks. Um, and worst of all time, Manello's going to have at me for this because we have the, this is an argument we've been having for like a decade now. But I think Ferris Bueller's Day Off is the worst. Whoa! Oh, I am. I'm firmly on Team Rooney. I think uh, I'm a f- I try to support civil servants. I think Ferris is a, a lying, uh, entitled piece of shit who doesn't appreciate any of doesn't appreciate any of the things uh, his parents or the the Chicago's taxpayers do for him. And if given if given the chance, I, I would like to see that character set on fire. Wow. Mm. That kind of just rules. Wa- I just watch that. Election and imagine that it's a uh, make it a direct sequel, and you'll be. Oh, I, I did. <laughs> I, I, I I absolutely did. I think I think the Alexander Payne knew exactly what he was doing there. <laughs> All right. Well, I I have a cat sleeping on me, so I wasn't able to get up and work on my list. But um, I'm, I like Mike's idea of uh, stuff I've been to lately, and like for me, uh, my wife is she loves Halloween. Because she really didn't get to celebrate it when she was a kid, so October is just let's watch all the scary stuff we can. So, yeah. uh, so lately, um, let's see, tore through Midnight Mass. I'm a big Mike Flanagan fan, and I just ate that show up. I loved it. Um, we got to uh, here and here. I got to see Nightmare on Elm Street in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which Whoa. out here, out here they do they do movies at the cemetery, and it's a blast. And you could bring wine and cheese and hang out on your blanket and watch the movie and I've never actually seen a horror movie in that because they do them every summer so getting to see Nightmare on Elm Street which is Jen's favorite horror movie and one of my favorite horror movies to see it the, for, for the first time with a crowd was really cool and then uh, then I showed her Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors last night which I don't think she's ever seen and I'm a big Dokken fan and there's a lot of Dokken in that uh, a, lot of, a lot of good hair metal in that movie so uh, and, it, and it's got a lot of really crazy good like practical effects that like oh, yeah. if you were to go through like a if universal halloween horror nights if they did a nightmare on elm street dream warriors haunted experience the effects would probably be as good as that movie because it just looks like an actual ridiculous haunted house that you can walk through so uh so i appreciated that um and then we saw malignant the other night which is i don't know if it's a good movie but it's bonkers crazy and ballsy and from what I've heard like it's James Wan's passion project he's been trying to make it for 20 years so uh, whether it's good or not is up for debate but it is a it is an experience and it is mind-blowingly <laughs> weird that I enjoyed that and then uh, you know Halloween's my favorite horror movie and I got to see it the other day it was on and I got to at least watch the the big finale which I just I dearly love so of late like late horror, you know what I've been watching, listening, watching lately. Those are my top fave horror experiences, yeah. top five horror experiences. And then uh, the worst movie, the worst movie in the last twenty years, I saw with Ben and his wife oh, no. Alicia in the theater. And if you want horror, if you want something that's going to turn your stomach and make you rage at the universe, uh, just go to the watch the Terminal, directed by Steven Spielberg with Tom Hanks. I hate that movie so much. It angers me so much. It's the most ridiculous thing. But I'm glad I got to see it with Ben because uh, we had that experience together. So I thought I thought this was going to be our first where someone didn't mention Halloween 
Uh, but this is our first where someone dunks on Tom Hanks. So, Look, hell yeah. I was so ready to not talk about Halloween. I was so ready. <laughs> I like. I knew I, I realized that nobody had said it yet, and I was like, yes. Yes. Halloween is a fine movie. Like- I'm not. I'm not shitting on you or anything like that. It's just like every person I've talked to from small to large involvement in the horror world somehow halloween comes up and i'm just like i swear to god this movie's just handed out like (laughs) they just give it to you at this point (laughs) i love it but i I, you know it's one of those key movies i saw when i was a kid at exactly the right moment and yeah yeah i didn't see it till i was a little older I, i was uh my parents didn't let me watch it when it when it first was out and it sounded so scary and then when i finally saw it i built it up to be something that it would it, no movie could be as scary as what I thought it was going to be. Not not to be an intentional contrarian, but to me, Black Christmas is the the real perfection. I think Halloween's fine, but it's always just been Black Christmas. I I'm a much bigger fan of a lot of John Carpenter's other movies. Like we were just talking, oh, Bob yeah. and I actually saw each other last night, and we were talking about Prince of Darkness. Nobody really talks about that movie enough. <laughs> I and, love uh, Prince of Darkness. I love that. Yeah, movie. One of the, the best, fantastic. One of my favorite movie going experiences in L.A. ever was the church where they shot that. Is now a theater where uh, it's it's the Whoa. home of the East West Players, and they did a screening of Prince of Darkness in the church. And they had set up like uh, little displays of where various things happen in and around the church grounds. I mean, obviously, a lot of that movie was a soundstage, but um, but you could like walk. So we all watched the movie in the main church, and then walk around and see where everything happened. And uh, I mean, uh, yeah, to me, that's like one of the most underappreciated John Carpenter movies. But you know, I'll take the thing over Halloween. I'll take honestly, I'll take almost anything starting right after Halloween. Start like the fog. Or, I mean, even uh, before the Halloween, uh, Assault on Precinct 13, I, I think uh, Halloween is not John Carpenter's strongest film. It's just probably, for whatever reason, one of the most enduring horror movies of all time. Yeah. I think as long as I don't have to rewatch Dark Star or anything after They Live, I would be okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I have Snake Plissken tattooed on my shoulder, so I will suffer nice. through Escape from L.A., but everything yeah. else, I'm good. I'm I'm okay. <laughs> Bruce Campbell doesn't save Escape from L.A. I don't give a shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it 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 doesn't work. But uh, and and, and I'll also, like, I'm gonna lose all my horror bona fides. But I'm really not that interested in the new Halloween movies. No, no. Oh of those man, I am. I am. Oh, Blade's yeah, not. Sorry. I got your back. I, no, I like the new one too. I, yeah, you know, I thought it was really cool. I went and saw my dad yesterday, and I was like, are we going to see this in theaters, or are we watching it at home? And he was like, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll go, whatever. And I was like, cool, thanks. Uh, but no, I thought the new one was great. It makes up for the Rob Zombie ones, and uh, that's fine by me. Um, the last question, uh, where can we find everyone on, on the interwebs? How can people contact you and blame you for ruining their childhood in 1998 awesome this is mike uh, manello you can find me on uh twitter and instagram and linkedin at, at uh mike manello at mike manello is the username for all of those and um yeah looking forward to connecting awesome now where can people send like physical threats to you <laughs> uh, you'll have to digitize them and send them uh, 
uh, through one of those platforms. You can also find out what's happening uh, uh, at campfirenyc.com. Uh, that's, that's what's going on with Campfire, the company that I co-founded and run. Absolutely. Now I'm just going to select random people for the hot seat since somebody wanted to offer up anything else. Nick, where can we find you? Um, I'm easy to find. I'm at, I'm at bracciacreative.work, Nick Braccia on Twitter, um, which I'm using more and more these days. I'm all over Discord. Not so much a LinkedIn or an Instagram person, and I'm easy to find on Facebook. Also, just in case there's some crossover, I have a book out on The Sopranos, so you can find me in bookstores, uh, off the back oh, of the truck, cool. contraband for the, for the Sopranos fan. Right on. Absolutely. Now, Ben, where can we uh, find you? You can find me at benrockonline.com. And all my socials are on there. Uh, uh, I'm on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and I am on LinkedIn. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, you can feel free to uh, find any of my stuff there. Also, I'm the co-host of the Cinematography Podcast, where we interview uh, some, some pretty amazing DPs of, uh, of, of movies that you've all seen. Um, and we drop a new episode every week. So later today, I'll be doing the host wraps for that. Um, and uh, if you if, if you enjoy the sound of my melodious voice, please uh, subscribe to the Cinematography Podcast. Absolutely, I'm gonna check that out. That sounds really nice. Bob, my uh, that my comes to boy. us. Bob. Where are you at? All right. <laughs> uh, pretty much Twitter is the best way to reach me at them Bob, like T H E M as in Mary, B O B. At them, Bob on Twitter is the best way to find me. And um, Ben and I's web series, uh, you can go to 20secondstolive.com if you ever want to check that out. Please uh, those do. Those episodes are all available there, and they're free, and they're fun, and super short, and super bloody. Very so short. have a good time. You can watch oh, the yeah. entire series in, un- it's like 20 minutes, right, Bob? Yep. I, I, right about on. that, I believe. Right on. Look, if somebody's not going to take 20 minutes of their time to listen to watch something that we're promoting, they shouldn't listen. I mean, the shortest episode is a minute and a half, you know, so. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I have that attention span. uh, Are you promoting anything? Uh, Grip Hook. uh, Oh, yeah. They got Um, something coming out. Hey, I'm the Grip Hook guy. Uh, Friday, this this is being recorded on a Sunday. It'll be out next Monday. But, uh, so, three days ago, our single, The Degenerates, for Putrid Productions' new movie, The Degenerates, uh, came out. Um, Spotify got mad and said the cover was too gory, so listen to it on Spotify so I make half a penny and then buy it on Bandcamp with the cool cover. Uh, on Halloween, the full-length Brutal Bloodsport comes out. Uh, 13 songs, it's like 12 minutes, I think. Um, I don't know. Play it for your mom. Uh, yeah. That's good enough. I don't care. <laughs> All right, everybody, thank you very much for a wonderful discussion. And also, now, by one minute, I believe we beat Mike Vanderblitz's record time on this podcast for longest episode. Hell yeah, it took four yeah. people to out-talk Mike Vanderbilt. <laughs> I miss that guy every nice. day. Well, thanks for having us. Hell yeah, yes, thank you guys so much. so much for doing this. I thank really appreciate it. very much. Everybody have a wonderful night.